Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. When someone's desire for change meets systems and barriers being removed, great things always happen. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode was made possible thanks to our friends over at Nation Builder. Today, I'm interviewing Dominique Morgan. Dominique is an award-winning artist, activist, speaker, and a powerhouse executive director at The Okra Project. Partnering her lived experience of incarceration as a youth with a decade of change-making artistry, advocacy, and background in public health, Dominique continues to work in spaces of sex education, radical self-care, and youth development with intentions of dismantling the prison industrial complex and collectively addressing the needs of Black trans people. I appreciate Dominique for the work that she does, but I also deeply appreciate the person that she is. I have been following her work for a while, and what I see in Dominique is a level of nuance and curiosity that we don't see enough from leaders in this space. In this conversation, you will hear her rigor in the work, her grounded reflections about the nonprofit industrial complex, and you'll hear the way she thinks critically and gets curious about all of the layers of injustice, oppression, and the path to abolition. We talk about everything from nonprofit pay and the overhead myth to fundraising fears, mission creep, funder alignment, and we talk about the work that the nonprofit sector needs to do if we are truly going to solve the audacious goals we've outlined in our mission statements. This episode will transform you. So let's get started so you can meet Dominique. Welcome, everyone. I am so thrilled to be here today with Dominique Morgan. Dominique, welcome to What the Fundraising. Oh, thank you for having me. I am really excited about this conversation. I have been following your work for a while and then found out that we have a friend in common, Donovan Taylor Hall, who I love dearly. And so it's just such a pleasure to get to talk to you today. So excited to be here. And of course, love Donovan. So why don't we start with you just sharing with folks your story and journey, which is inspiring. And I think will give us a lot of different places to span off and have a bigger conversation about your activism and leadership. Yeah. My name is Dominique Morgan. Pronouns are she and her. By day, I am the newest executive director of the Okra Project. I just completed almost five years as the executive director of Black and Pink is the largest prison abolitionist organization in the world. And I'm really proud to say that I was a part of making that a truth for the organization. Born and raised in Omaha, Nebraska, Midwest through and through. But as a young person, I was navigating many systems, whether it was foster care, group homes, or detention centers, and then experienced homelessness. And at at the age of 18, entered the adult prison system here in Nebraska and spent nearly a decade navigating that system. 
in February, it will be 14 years since my release from incarceration. And I came home from prison with an associate's degree in culinary management, thinking that was like my apex. I wanted to work in a restaurant. I wanted to have a vehicle that got me from point A to point B. One day, maybe go on a vacation. And I did not feel like I was settling at the time. I really was thinking of the highest heights of what I believed based on what the world had told me for most of my life, whether it was based on the decisions I had made or based on what was now going to be a part of my story forever, which was incarceration and being system impacted. That was a very lofty dream to be gainfully employed, to have a home that felt affirming and have some semblance of a lived experience that didn't feel as oppressive as most days had felt in my life up until that point. Thankfully, I volunteered for Pride that summer of 2009 and was too broke to afford a ticket. And so they were like, if you volunteer, you will get in free at no cost, not free. We're on a fundraising platform. If it doesn't cost the person, it costs the organization. And I remember seeing a young person who, it was clear she was working the event. And it was interesting because I was just signing people in on the list, but I was enjoying it. I was enjoying meeting people. And I asked her, like, how did she get this job? And she told me that she had a degree in public health. And a very proud Pisces, emotional decisions are our ministry. And I remember I went home that night and signed up for online classes with Southern New Hampshire University in their public health program. Because I was like, for the first time in my life, I was doing work, but it didn't feel like work. You know, I remember being young and having friends in the Midwest, and it might be something that happens nationally. There's like a test that you take in like your junior year of high school that tells you like what career path you should go down. Now, I remember so many of my friends knowing in their sophomore year, freshman year, like, what do I want to be? I couldn't answer that question. And I always felt out of sorts because maybe I just wasn't smart enough or maybe I just wasn't hungry enough when in fact... I hadn't been given access to all of the options that really exist mm. when you think about a person's career. And so activism for me really began with that volunteer experience. I started my undergrad. I leaned into Pride more, became the first Black president of Pride, vice president of Pride in Nebraska. I created Youth Pride in Nebraska. And really that was on the ground lived experience from fundraising, trying to afford performers, putting on this big event for my state for free. I was a volunteer working 30, 40 hours, still working a job, going to school, but I loved it. There was never a day when I was like, oh my God, I don't want to do this. Then my life hit that apex of my history being in the system. I started to feel like I would never have a career because I would apply for the job. We think you're awesome. Oh, we saw you here. And then it's the background check or it's we've passed the background check or I've disclosed and then it's a board member or something. It was so scary for me to believe I could never have a job where I was being paid in this work that I found was my passion. And so I just continued to volunteer. And I'll never forget putting on Facebook in maybe 2014, 2015, listen, I will serve the coffee. Can someone please just hire me? Mm -hmm. And 2015, that fall, I was finishing my undergrad. I was offered a job working for Congressman Brad Ashford and Congressman Ashford passed away this year. But it was a great opportunity because he looked at me and he didn't see my past as a barrier. And that was the first time that rolled into graduating in May of 2016, my undergrad. I started as a sexual health educator 
July 1st of 2016. I became the ED of Black and Pink January of 2018. Took on the job at the Oka Project October of 2021. So when people talk about my career, when people talk about the things that I have accomplished, there are times that I struggle with it, not because I'm afraid to see the things that I've been able to do. It's literally been six years of me not being seen for where I came from, but being seen from where I am now and where I want to go. That simple change has opened doors and created opportunities that I never thought was possible. So you look back to 2009 and the most I wanted to do was like, again, run kitchens and do these things. And I say that to say that is incredible work. And there are people, the Bobby Flays of the world, who spend all of their days in the kitchen and that's Mm -hmm. their love language. I was doing that because I thought that's all I was going to be able to do. Looking back, I didn't think I was settling, but I was settling because I I didn't believe I had the right to ask for more. Mm -hmm. And so now, six years later in 2022, to be the only Black trans woman in U.S. history, to be the executive director of two multi-million dollar agencies at the same time, to just wrapped up being the Grand Marshal for New York Pride. I'm the only model that Apple has ever had for their Pride campaigns or for Apple campaign, period. The things I've been able to do has really been about not people doing me favors, but people saying, listen, these barriers, we're going to do our best to help remove them. And then we're going to let you do your thing. And when someone's desire for change meets systems and barriers being removed, great things always happen. Wow. There's so many questions I want to ask you just hearing more about your story. But I'm curious to go to that piece around the evolution of you recognizing your deservingness to ask and want more. And I'm curious, you were fundraising back when you were volunteering with Pride. And we talk a lot on this show about the ways in which conversations around money activate a lot of our inner beliefs about self and value. And I'd be curious to know how your raising arc has perhaps followed or mirrored some of this other evolution that you've seen in yourself. I think the nonprofit space is really interesting. We hunger to be seen as special Mm. and not like for-profit spaces. And I'm from Omaha, Nebraska, which is a land of family philanthropy. The Buffett family, there's so many families that have access and they've chosen to take that access and invest it in a way to where community can experience change. To think of a city like Omaha that gets to build the things we get to build and have the work we get to have Mm. because of the folks who invest in our community, it's beautiful and powerful. At the same time, I'm really thankful that my first role as an executive director, I brought the Office for Black and Pink to Omaha, but we were a national organization. And I would say out of 100% of our funding, for the first two or three years, maybe 5% of that money came from Nebraska. And that allowed me to learn about fundraising in real time from a national perspective, because I think Relationships are important in fundraising, understanding the systems you're navigating, the pre-work. I've spent years attending panels and doing things just so these people can know me. So when I get in front of them or when an application for our organization is in front of them, they're aware of my work. They're aware of my character because that's just what it takes sometimes, especially Mm -hmm. for Black people, for a Black trans woman and someone who comes from where I come from. I'm not walking in rooms and people are writing me 
$10 million checks, not because I'm not doing $10 million work, but because this idea of nonprofit where powerful things happen from nonprofit spaces, to be clear, but because we don't want to name our stuff, doing that shadow work of our community, we don't realize that all the bias and all the things that show up in other places is here, but it's something we call in Nebraska, we call it Nebraska nice, to where there's racism in Nebraska, but it's more of, we're not going to tell you you can't come in the building. We're just going to put you in the really crappy table at the back of the restaurant mm. near the kitchen. It's never aggressive or in your face. And because we aren't wanting to name like, oh my goodness, I saw Dominique's Facebook and I maybe didn't like something that Dominique said. And I'm not going to name that when I looked at this application for this grant, maybe my own personal opinions are going to mm. affect whether we say yes or no or are going to affect the expectations I have of this money. And for me, that's the arc is, I've done the work to try to be clear about what the nonprofit industrial complex is, mm. not to put on it because I work in nonprofit. I truly believe at this point in my life, if I'm working for an organization, if I am being employed somewhere, I most likely will be employed by a nonprofit organization. But we still got to be able to see our stuff. Mm. We have to understand that. And as a Black trans woman who, even in the things I just shared, the privilege I have of people do know my name and I've been in fellowships and all of these things, I'm able to look at some of my sisters who cannot get $5,000 to do mm. a food pantry. So that fundraising experience in the beginning, that was something interesting. And I also think I need to name that it's really weird to be poor and people will talk to you about millions. It's really interesting to look at a person could be working on your staff and your development officer. And I know so many places are not lucky enough to have a development officer. The ED is doing all the things. <laughs> I've been blessed that one, I had a good friend of mine, shout out to my sister, Ashley Spivey. She is in the philanthropy space. And when I became an ED, she put me up on game. She was like, no, this is what it looks like. Dominique, if you have to choose between getting someone to run your programs or getting someone who can help you write grants, girl, get a grant writer. Mm -hmm. And I tell that to girls now. But also, if I put a budget in front of somebody for a grant and they're like, oh, you do programming. Why didn't you put a program staff on here before a development person? It's interesting. But what I've learned is that it's really difficult to think about all of that money and then I know organizations where people are running pantries and having to go home with a pantry. So that's really important for me to think about as well. Mm -hmm. Not becoming so desensitized mm -hmm. to talking about money from a fundraising perspective. I'm a Black, poor kid from the north side of Omaha, Nebraska. All things I'm truly proud about and all things that for me, it was right before Pride, before we headed to New York. People might drag me for this story, but I'm going to tell the story because I think it's a word that people need to hear. When we're talking about money and we're talking about fundraising and we're talking about this scarcity approach we have to how mm. we pay people in nonprofits and how philanthropy and fundraising, how we will drag people because it's, I gave a dollar and you're making this amount of money, like this assumption mm. that this dollar I gave to the campaign is going into my salary. My first year at Charles Drew Health Center working as an adolescent health educator, the most money I had ever made in my life. I'm talking about, listen, there was a time in my life when I was like, you're going to have to pry me from this desk at Charles Drew. I was making $42,000 a year, full benefits, and I was on 10. I was like, oh my goodness, if I wake up every day and do my job, I'll never have to worry about paying my bills. I never have to wonder if I'll be able to eat again. It was the best thing that had ever happened to me. Making that money. Again, 
I have eight felonies on my record as a young person. Like looking at where I come from in that moment, impossible had happened. Let's just be Mm. clear. It was right before we were heading to New York with my team and I went to go check my account and I had about $50,000 in my checking, not savings or anything, but it was like $50,000 in there because some things had come down and I got payouts and all that stuff. And I remember sitting there and I started crying because I had almost $8,000 more than what my first year salary would have been at Charles Drew. And also recognizing that because I have more, I give more, I get to do more. And I also work in a system that will look at my salary and say, why does she make that? Where does this money go? And I remember in that moment thinking, I don't have to work from scarcity anymore. And so I think fundraising and the conversations around philanthropy, especially for folks of color, for marginalized folks, could you imagine being a person who can carry a child, possibly working in spaces around reproductive justice at this time in our community? It blows my mind to think that we don't recognize that the more the people who are doing the work have access, the more they get to do with it. Yes, in their work. But historically, our work doesn't stop when we clock out. It's the girls inboxing me on Instagram, sending me their GoFundMes because they need to eat at night. That's not Dulker Project spending that money. That's Dominique Morgan doing it. And I do that because I'm at a point where I have enough access and abundance to pay it forward and not suffer. And I told that long story to circle back to that's what philanthropy is in the first place. These systems, historically, these families, these white individuals have so much money that they get to take care of themselves, their loved ones, and then they get to say, we also want to invest in the community. And none of them have to choose whether they eat or whether community eats Mm -hmm. because they've been given the privilege to get to the point where they have enough abundance to choose both. And so that was a really long response, but my understanding about philanthropy helped me realize that I want to be a philanthropist as well. Mm -hmm. I want to give funds to people, that Mm -hmm. there's power in that. And also, it's far more powerful when I don't feel like I have to turn myself into a martyr. And I'm like, oh, I fed someone, but I went without food tonight. I feel Mm -hmm. so great about that. If anything, philanthropy has just taught me about the process of raising money, that the ways that folks position themselves to be philanthropists, some of us need to take on those tactics ourselves. And last but not least, we have to really dismantle and own our mess as folks in nonprofit. And that doesn't mean that we're bad or good or in between. It just means we just are. Yeah. One of the things I always appreciate about you is I just feel like you navigate nuance really well. So I really appreciate everything that you just said. And it's interesting. I just did a podcast interview with this woman, Angela Matthews, who's like an investment coach. And she made this comment on the show about how when we're advocating for a raise, we need to move out of the scarcity mindset that us having that money isn't taking it directly away from someone else. And I was thinking, I was like, in nonprofit, that's actually a little bit complicated. People do feel like they're looking at that budget. They see their salary line. They see that program line. But I think your point is so important, which is that nonprofit leaders should not be the ones faced with that either or. They're the people who deserve more than anything to have access to the resources they need and to not, frankly, have the nonprofit itself perpetuating the inequities that the nonprofit is set up to solve. Like, it's just a little bit crazy making. It is. And I understand for people who are just like, hey, I gave $10 to this campaign. And you see, again, I drive a Mercedes, right? I also tell people, I was like, I've never had one job. 
my first year as an executive director, so my first year at Charles Drew, I was making 42000 My first year as an executive director at Black and Pink running a national organization, my salary was $55,000 a year. I worked both jobs to get close to making one hundred k. So that hustle mentality was always there. It wasn't about that, but it blew my mind. That once I understood getting on Guidestar and looking at a 990, y'all start doing that more. And you'll see these EDs that are making half a million dollars. And for me, it's, I'm not mad that you're making that. I'm saying, why doesn't everyone make that? I'm saying that that type of money means that, you know what? Dominique doesn't work five jobs. So I get to show up at my day job really like in a very different way. So very much so. Nuance. And also, you want to still hear people because that person, maybe they come from the church life where they tithe. And I grew up with an aunt who would call in for her phone bill and, and get a extension on her phone bill to be able to tithe that church. And she would have to catch two or three buses to church, but the pastor was walking away in a binge. So I use that example to say, you never know where someone's experience, their trauma, their fears come from. Mm-hmm. But we also don't have to kowtow to it. We can gently push back. We can say, this is what it looks like to take care of people who take care of others. Mother Teresa didn't have to pay rent. So mama could do a lot of stuff for free. (laughs) Did not have to buy herself food. Mm. Didn't have to buy flights to go on Goodwill Mm. missions. All those things. So when you talk to me about someone who's in those roles, I'm always like, yeah. Oh, Dominique. You make as much as someone on the Supreme Court. Their security is free. Their meals are free. Their rent is free. All those things. I have to not only take care of myself, but historically as oppressed people, right? As non-male identified, as non-cis identified folks in this world, our money is usually taking care of us and two or three generations of other folks around us, whether it's a Mm -hmm. parent, a grandparent. When August comes, I don't have kids, but I'm buying school clothes for my nieces and nephews because that's what you do. So yes, absolutely. That's really important to think about for me. And then I think about it for myself, but I also think about it for my staff. What do you need? My team at the Okra Project, I wasn't living in New York and I had two staff members coming to New York from the Midwest. One was making like 120 and one was making like in the 85 range. And I remember them being like, oh, like I can't really do this. I can't really do that. And I had to sit them down and say, I need you to tell me what you need because I don't know what Mm. it costs to be in New York right now. So Mm. I'll tell you my desire. My desire is to compensate you at a level to just, as you said, Mallory, to where we're not perpetuating and we're not positioning you to experience the very things that we seek to address at at the Okra Project. And I don't know what it's like to be a young Black trans Mm. person trying to find a home in New York because that's not where I'm at. So let me know what that looks like Mm. for the EDs or the leaders or the people or the program officers who are over these grants. Let's ask more questions about what do you really need? And sometimes what that person really needs may exceed what you can do. But the power of asking what they need means that you don't know what comes. I've had so many people who I've told them what I've needed. And maybe in the beginning, they've had 50,000, but they'll come back and say, hey, this extra money came in. I remember you said you wanted to do this project. I'm going to circle back to Mm -hmm. you. So those questions, I think, set us up to really show up for people. And at the end of the day, I think that's one of the beautiful things about philanthropy and fundraising is that it positions us all to show up for people, whether it's Mm -hmm. the or, whether it's the person offering the funds, whether it's the person working in the nonprofit to distribute funds, it allows us to show up. 
first tea of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And it's bringing up for me something you were talking about a few minutes ago around that sort of shadow work piece and our avoidance of that in the sector. And I'm curious how you think about, because I agree, I think this sector could be so much stronger if we did that work, if we were willing to look at ourselves and be really honest about these components. And Part of me wonders if what holds us back is a lot of the performative perfectionism that we feel like we need to do in the sort of show and dance for funding. Part of it also makes me wonder if the work itself, and I'm curious what you think about this, like the work to really look at that shadow stuff is hard and uncomfortable. And I feel like we placate ourselves a lot in the nonprofit system. We're good people because I work here. And that keeps us away. Like in some ways, I almost feel like it's more dangerous when nonprofits are perpetuating these things because they can hide from it in a way that other entities can't. Because they're like, wait, look over here. Look at this like really good anti-racist thing we did. Friend, the number of for-profit organizations or the number of banks who have someone now on staff after 2020, they have someone on staff that's over philanthropy. It's not just because they want to give. It's because there is this guise of goodness in the nonprofit space. And again, shopper work is hard. And I know that if I, for instance, if I have a pimple on my face, I really don't want to look in the mirror at that pimple all day. Mm. If I don't know the pimples there, if I don't change up my face wash or whatever, I'm most likely never going to be able to address it. And I think that looking at the pimple doesn't mean that our entire entity, our body is a pimple. But it does mean Mm. that we don't get to show up the way we want to because we're not looking ourselves in the face. When you look at the data of who's writing the grant, the black and brown folks who are on the ground, who are asking for the funds, compared to the people who are either offering the funds or who are in a position to be an intercessor to decide that you get the funds, that itself is inherently disproportionate and harmful. Just on that. But if we don't do the work to name, hey, Maybe us looking at us having $100 million and everyone who is distributing this $100 million is a white person. Yes, there may be some white women in here, but we do queer work and no one on staff identifies as a queer person. Can we talk about that? Doesn't mean that tomorrow you have to go out and tokenize queer people and hire a queer person that you're not ready to support. But it does mean let's talk about the type of folks you would want to hire. Let's talk about why you haven't had those folks apply. If they did apply, why they didn't make it to a final interview? Those questions, I don't have a problem with the person being exactly who they say they are, a person or a system. It's frustrating when it looks like they know exactly who they are. They've doubled down on it. And then when you call them out, they're like, we don't know. It's, hey, just say that we want to gatekeep. But if that's not your desire, we all know enough at this point to where we could be doing better because we know better. And again, none of this for me is about us talking down to people. None of it is about saying that great things don't happen. It's saying that 
if we are the space where beautiful work happens for human beings, should we not hold ourselves to a higher standard? If we pull on the for-profit girls who look at their bottom line, shouldn't we push ourselves to really emulate who we want to see mm. in the mirror at the end of the day? And I think that doesn't happen if we don't have real conversation. For the past couple of years, I've been able to attend and speak at the Yale Philanthropic Conference. And those conversations are really powerful. I just finished my time as a Kaplan Fellow and Amy and Justin at Kaplan. And Amy has just been appointed as the new president of the New York Philanthropic Trust. She will be overseeing $6 billion. It's really powerful to hear those folks ask questions and be open. Mm -hmm. So for me, if those folks who could just shield themselves are like, listen, how do we be better? I don't have a problem challenging everyone with that. And I can challenge with love. I can challenge with respect. Mm. I can challenge with care. But I am going to challenge because this is my life. I love that. And we've had a few conversations on this podcast around how often we don't even ask donors a simple question back. I had this woman on who talked about the science of influence and how when there's perceived power dynamics and we believe someone has more power than us, they will say something offhandedly and we're like, okay, you definitely want to do that thing. And we don't take that moment to be like, talk to me about that. What's the goal around that? My first boss, her name was Ann Smosty. Shout out to Ann. She is the one who hired me at Charles Drew. And talking about story, before Ann hired me 10 years earlier, she was working for an organization that helped with utility assistance. And so I remember my lights were going to be cut off the summer of 2011 and she helped me with that. And then all those years later, when she became the director of reproductive health at Charles Drew, I was her first hire. And she would constantly talk about mission creep. This idea of people with the funds will come in and say, hey, I would love to see y'all do a program about law and I'm going to give you a million dollars to do it. And then the organization, one, rushes to do it. That's not something that they really care about. Two, the program is a pet project of that person. They haven't talked about if there's sustainability for that work. Are there other systems funding that? Is it a 10-year commitment from this person? We don't ask those questions because we're chasing the dollar. And so the mission creep conversation, that conversation we were just having of knowing yourself also helps you say, okay, that's great. Actually, I know someone who's doing that. Again, abundance positions you not to feel like, oh, I only got $5, so this person offering $100. If I tell them to go to this other person, that I don't know what I'm going to do next. Abundance means that we have so much, we are mm. excited to share amongst. So I'm like, oh, you know what? If someone calls Okra Project today and they're like, oh, we want to support sex workers. We do support folks who identify as sex workers. But you know what? My former employer, Black and Pink, they have a sex worker liberation project. You should call Andrew and Andrew's mm. doing philanthropy there. Andrew's doing fundraising there because it positions me to maintain who I am. You have integrity. I think people respect you. I think donors respect you if you're just like, listen, that's not our bag. Thank you, though. I would love to tell you about some things that I am dreaming about us doing. If you want to know about something new or because philanthropy loves to be involved in new and innovative stuff. It's no shade again. But you can ask the person, what's your dream project that you would love to do here and no one has ever funded you to do? Mm -hmm. Ask better questions. Mission creep is like a big thing because you'll drown in it. In 2020, there are so many organizations that were heavily funded to do work that they never planned to do because mm. that's where the dollars were coming from. And now in 2022, everybody's doing restructuring and everybody's doing new SWOT analysis. Why? Because in the time when you need to know who you were the most, 
You weren't focused on it. And so that's something that I hold dearly to my heart. Being ready Mm. to say no. And also having a list of people who I can refer people to because I really never want scarcity to control the way that I do Mm. my work. It's such good advice. I have a course called the Power Partners Formula and it's a fundraising course, but the best day of my life (laughs) in that course was when someone inside said they had turned down a million dollars. And I was like, that's the point. Because if you're focused on alignment and exactly you know who you are, it doesn't mean everyone has to fit into your box. And then having referrals or partner organizations on hand when folks come in who are in those Venn diagram circles, but they're serving an area better. I just love that. I think that's such good advice. And I think it begs this question that I've been wondering a lot recently, which is what is the role of nonprofit leaders to take care of the system. Sometimes I'll find myself feeling maybe overly critical around how a leader fundraises for an organization because I think the messaging might be harmful to the sector as a whole. But then I back up and I'm like, maybe that's not fair. I don't know what responsibility we can expect of organizational leaders to nurture the system. I think that's an important conversation. And also that's like right next to does the end meet the means. It's important to name that different leaders have different privileges to do different things. When I look at young Black leaders, I know their desire is to help the system be better, but because they maybe don't do it the way that people want them to, or because they haven't had enough time around, people will label them as angry, as difficult, Mm -hmm. as someone they should not engage with, right? And so I know that I am often faced with, especially as a leader, I had to really sit in myself of, Yes, Dominique, you can say this, but are you ready for Okra Project or, the, or Black and Pink to suffer the consequences of you saying that? Not even so much myself, but my work, people who have positioned me to lead for them. And so sometimes people are making that choice. Now, absolutely, there could be times when folks are just like, you know what, I really don't care. I'm not invested. I'm here for my stuff and my people. But more times than not, there's too many backroom moments when people are just like, oh, I wouldn't say that. Oh, we all know that's a problem, but we really don't say anything about that. So this Mm. will be the better way to do it. And so I think it's also interesting that we usually want the most oppressed people to sacrifice themselves to make these systems better. And that's real. But for me, I do recognize the amount of privilege I have. I do. I've had the experience of sitting on so many committees and Mm. making grant decisions, whether it was for the Community Foundation here in Omaha or working on the trans justice a project where we're giving out $100,000. I've written the grant, I've approved grants, and I've done all the stuff in between. And so I get the system of the beast now. So I make informed decisions. And there are times when I'm like, I know I'm going to hear about this in my email on Monday. And I know it, and I'm okay with that. And then there are times when I'm like, I really can only talk about this in my group chat because although I could, and although in a perfect world, it'd be great to address this on a public level, you know what? We're trying to build a multi-million dollar housing system in Atlanta right now for the Okra Project. And I really don't feel like it's appropriate for me to put my desire to say what I want to say over that opportunity. Is it fair? No, but it's real. Again, Mm. seeing ourselves and knowing what it is. So I think we'll see more people Mm. lean into that work of bettering it Mm. when there's not inherent consequences Mm. of you saying something someone doesn't like or if your approach isn't the best. And also, I think that there are those of us who have more access and privilege 
And we need to be better with just, maybe it's not even so much calling stuff out, but how many friends do we have that are in the work that we can be like, hey, can I talk to you about this? Hey, I saw the application y'all put out for ARPA funds. I was applying these questions do not make sense Mm. to me. And I'm sure it's going to be difficult for someone else. Can I chat with you about that? Because that's real awesome. Yeah, I think that's great advice. So before we have to go, I'd love to just hear a little bit about the work you're doing with the Okra Project right now, particularly in managing the relationships between the philanthropists and on the ground staff and what it looks like to support staff in their relationship with the funders or funding around some of the projects they're implementing and how you think about that. One step I think to demystifying like that's the funder. Like everyone has been in the office when the funder Mm. walks in and hush, right? (laughs) Everybody is, oh my God, they're coming today. We have to demystify that and take away Mm. that scariness. I think As much as some people in philanthropy are like, we're like everyone else. No, girl, you send me an email. Do you have time today? I'm going to make time for you because you write the check. But having my team know these folks, so that way it takes away this hierarchy to who has access and information about the money that's coming in and that information. Two, there is a new trend of philanthropy and fundraising centering the needs of trans people, specifically Black trans people. And I was a part of witnessing and leading an organization when that trend happened five years ago for issues around mass incarceration. Mm -hmm. And then you saw all these organizers fighting for these dollars, right? You saw people who had never experienced mass incarceration starting organizations. It became the money grab. And I foresee that shift happening. And so at the Okra Project, we are directly granting funds to Black trans women leaders across the country. Yes, I could look at the funds we have and I could be like, you know what, if I batten down the hatches, I won't have to write a grant. Local Project, we wrote our first grant in March of this year. Local Project had been funded and mostly by general operating funds from community. I could sit on this money and we could probably run this organization for the next decade and I wouldn't have to write another grant. And at the Mm. same time, I'm like, I understand where I'm sitting. What can I do to dismantle this? Well, I have moments like this when I talk to someone like you and able to share this. I have moments when I get to speak to folks in philanthropy and also we're going to grant money to ourselves. We will be our own liberator. A part of that is also a changing language. So when you think of a micro grant, people looking at $2,500 to $5,000 maybe. We are calling these micro grants, but we are giving people fifty dollars to $100,000. To house someone in a hotel for a month who's experiencing displacement is like $3,000. These things cost to shift the experience and to manifest equity in our communities for oppressed people. So that's what we're doing. I am having my team go out. What organizations are you seeing doing great work? You got to be able to look at other people. I'm really believing if I ask you, you're a person in philanthropy. If you can't tell me your favorite people who do work like you, I am going to side eye you. Because in Mm. my opinion, if you're really in the work, you have other people you're really a fan of because Mm. you've gotten outside of yourself. And because you can be a fan of them, you're able to know what good work is. So I have my team. Hey, find two organizations that you think are great and tell me why they're great. Let's figure out how we can get some funds to them, how we can be in solidarity. Right now in D.C., I don't know if you've seen this, but you should. And it was a Forbes article on this. Casa Ruby is a huge housing continuum, mostly serving Black trans women. $4.5 million organizational budget. All the things are in the ruins. The founder has disappeared. The staff has been working since June and they have not been paid. And so a young Black trans woman named Aya Damons from Baltimore has went into D.C. and she's doing incredible work up there. So she is taking where she is and she is showing up for her people to address what are some offputs of the nonprofit industrial complex. We're giving funds to Aya. 
Mm. I don't need to go to D.C. Mm. That's not my city. I need to infuse funds in those girls. And in the meantime, I hope that money positions Aya to where she's able to do work that when she goes to philanthropy, because oftentimes philanthropy wants to see, build it and they will come, fill the dreams uh, mentality. Mm. You can say, I took this $50,000 from the Okra Project and I did this and this. If you give me a hundred, if you give me a million, this Mm. is what I can make happen. So that's what we're trying to do. I'm trying to take my experience in philanthropy and fundraising on the multiple levels I've been able to experience it. Black and Pink's budget my first year was $225,000. My last year, my budget was $3.2 million. And again, I'm a kid where it was like having a savings from the world I come from seems ridiculous. I was able to take the skills I had and be in there. And so that's what we are trying to do at the Okra Project. And I want to work with philanthropy and I want to say, listen, we're going to make ourselves accessible to support you in thinking about how you do the work. And also, I don't want that to stop you from getting out of the way. Give us the money. Mm. We'll make sure girls get the money. Mm. Uh, Yes, I'm a huge believer in meeting people where they are. And that's something that I really have a goal of. Like in the next five years, do you know a Black trans woman that's a philanthropist in this country? No. How? And I'm not saying it because people don't have the desire. I'm saying it because these things Mm. feel inaccessible to us. And I know that if there are more women who are in philanthropy, more work that centers women gets funded. That's just what it is. So if we have more Black trans folks who are in philanthropy or they've been able to come up with conduits to get funds to community, inherently more Black trans-led work, Black trans-centered work will be funded and funded at a capacity that's really powerful. So that's what we're focused Mm. on in addition to all the other things at the Oprah Project, our housing project in Atlanta and our therapy program. But yeah, let's name the thing. And also, my mother used to be like, what you gonna do about it? That used to be her favorite line. Like, I heard you. What you going to do about it? And I was just like, <laughs> okay, mom, my mother has passed on, but I hear her often talk to me. Mm. And when I looked at the Okra Project, I'm like, Dominique, what you going to do about it? So mm. that's what I leave the listeners with. What are y'all going to do about it? There's all of this information available. Yes, we are individuals. Not everyone has, not everyone is a Warren Buffett. And still, what you going to do about it? And as long as we keep asking ourselves that, as long as we keep asking people, how do we show up for them? As long as we stay tied to who we are, as long as we keep doing shadow work, I believe great work will come from our communities and will improve as a nonprofit community and as a community and as a community in general. I want to leave everyone with that. Thank you so much. I will make sure everyone has all the ways to get in touch with you, contact you, fund the Okra Project. Is there any final thing you want to say before we wrap up? Don't let... Fundraising and philanthropy scare you. Don't let it. Ferris Bueller's Day Off was a movie about a kid who probably should have never been anywhere he was, but he had the confidence to think that. (laughs) For me, I always feel like Ferris Bueller walking into those rooms, but because I believe I'm supposed to be, I am. These conversations are real. All of us struggle. All of us are learning. And Mm -hmm. just stay focused because this is where powerful work happens. All right. I ended this episode and I thought it might be one of the most important conversations I've ever had. There is so much here to unpack, but here are some of my top takeaways. Number one, striving to be our best selves includes granting ourselves permission to ask for more. This has to go hand in hand with fundraising abundantly. We can't have an abundant mindset in one area without the other. Number two, Nonprofit people deserve to be taken care of and paid appropriately. Nonprofits should not be perpetuating the systematic oppression they claim to want to solve 
in the way in which they pay and employ their staff. We see this too often and it needs to be called out. Number three, we can challenge with respect, love, and care, but we must challenge and be challenged. Number four, the system is broken and one of the greatest roadblocks we face to fixing it is that we aren't always looking honestly at what's broken and how we're perpetuating it. This is where the shadow work comes in and nonprofits cannot opt out of this work because they're doing other good work. This is really important for us to sit with and look at. Number five, I love that Dominique poses that challenge around what are you gonna do about it? As Dominique reminds us, we don't need vast resources or a magic wand. We just have to keep showing up for each other, asking questions, staying in the room and doing the work authentically and with confidence. Okay, there are so many more amazing insights and takeaways from this episode. So head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast to grab them now. You'll also find more information there about Dominique. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to malloryerickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.